Our main focus of today is actually going to be Luke 4, but we got a little bit of cleanup here from Luke 3 we need to do before we get into Luke chapter 4, continuing our study here through the book of Luke. Uh, we've been introduced to John the Baptist and uh, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry here in Luke chapter 3. And if you see there in verse 23, it says, Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about the age of 30 years. So we know where we're at here. Jesus is about 30, John the Baptist is about 31, and Jesus' public ministry lasted about three years. Now what you have here at Luke chapter 3, if you see from verses 24 through 38, it's a genealogy. And we have a tendency to skip over those type of things, in which we're actually going to skip over that today. But... It is important that it's in there, and it's important that we at least mention why it is in there. There's two genealogies of Jesus given here in the Bible. The first one is found in the book of Matthew. The second one here is found in Luke chapter 3. The one in Matthew seems to be a genealogy through Joseph, for lack of a better word, his stepfather, which would show how he has a rightful heir to the throne of David, king of Israel. But the problem is he's not related to Joseph by blood. So what you have here in Luke chapter 3 is you have a genealogy of Mary. That shows how by blood Jesus is related to David and how he can be king of Israel there through obviously being the Messiah. So what you have really in Matthew is his heir to the throne through his dad's side, and I use that term lightly, but what you also have here in Luke chapter 3 is he's the heir to the throne through blood through Mary. And that's why these two genealogies are in there. They're obviously very important, and it's important that we understand the context of that. But what we're going to study here mostly in Luke chapter 4 is the time where Jesus spent in the wilderness being tempted and tested and tried. And we can sure relate to this. So without much further ado, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll go ahead and get started. Heavenly Father, good to be here this morning. Uh, Lord, as always, your spirit teaches, and we listen, go before this. Uh, be with those that couldn't make it, Lord, due to the fair or vacation or illness, just be with them, and uh, bless them, Lord, and just bring them back soon. And for those that could make it today, we just pray that we'd really focus on what you have to say in your name. Amen. Do things a little bit differently. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 13, get the whole context of this, and we're going to come back and break this down. So verse 1 of Luke chapter 4, it says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for forty days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil taking him up on a high mountain, showing him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give to you, and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, quite a study here. There's lots of different things to talk about as we go through this. So, first thing that we need to talk about is the time frame of this. This is right after the baptism of Jesus. Right after. I mean, it comes right out and says that. If you look in verse 1, it says, And Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So right after this, he goes right into the wilderness. Now, to me, that's a spiritual point I can relate to. This is what I've noticed in my life, and also his time being out here as a pastor, that you can have something that's spiritual high. Things just click. I mean, it's just a season of life where things are clicking, things are going well, the kids are good, the marriage is good, the ministry is good, work is good. Every time you read the Bible, it's just alive and active. Every time you pray, you're right in the presence of the Lord. Everything is just wonderful. The problem is those seasons don't last forever. What happens usually after those seasons is what? It's a time of wilderness, of dryness. You're reading and you really don't get anything out of it. You're praying and there's not a lot of answered prayer. 
and you're not getting along with family, you're not getting along at work. There's just this wilderness time that follows. This is what happens a lot of times, is we have spiritual highs in life, which are great, which are wonderful, followed by times of wilderness. So what I see here with Jesus, here he is, he's being baptized. If you look back at Luke 3, 22, I mean, this is the baptism here. Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. Heavens open up. You are my beloved son, and you I'm well pleased. What an amazing entrance into public ministry for Christ. Now, if you're asking a PR guy, Jesus should have took this, run with it, and he could have had a great ministry right from the get-go. Instead, he does something really stupid. He goes to the wilderness for 40 days. That's not smart, but it's realistic. We have spiritual highs followed by spiritual lows. And Jesus is an example to us that when things are clicking, enjoy it. Because you know what? There's going to be times when things aren't clicking. And just because things aren't clicking doesn't make it the end of the world. It doesn't turn it into a woe is me or wilderness times. Now, we spent a lot of time talking about wilderness times two weeks ago. And if you want to go grab that or listen to it online, it was the July 29th message. And I don't want to repeat the whole thing. But there are wilderness times in our life where it's dry, we're alone, and it's rough rough times. Jesus went through that. John the Baptist went through that. And we talked about in our study, Moses went through that. David went through that. Paul went through that. Jesus is in the wilderness, so therefore he can relate to us when we go through this. And it's going to happen to you. It's inevitable it's going to happen. We need to be prepared for that, knowing these things are coming. One of the things that we always do when we have our baptism service, which is coming up here in a couple weeks, when we always do the teaching, one of the things we always say is pray for these people that are going to get baptized. Because as soon as they make this public stance for the Lord, they are putting this huge huge bullseye on the back of themselves. And they'll walk away from baptism. I'll tell you right now, baptism is a wonderful experience in your walk with the Lord. You walk out of that just feeling high and wonderful. God is amazing. Problem is, baptism happens at 4.30 on a Sunday. You got to go to work Monday morning. Spiritual low sometimes. And one of the things we always say is, there's this huge target on the back of anybody getting baptized. We need to pray for them, lift them up. This is an ongoing thing. You have something really good happen in life, be prepared for that little bit of a letdown. Because that's what the enemy does. I sometimes think the enemy lets us kind of go in those high moments and say, fine, I get it. You're walking hand in hand with the Lord right now, singing victory in Jesus. I got it. Just let me wait a little bit till that kind of edge is off. Remember with Peter, Jesus came up to the disciples and says, who do people say I am? So they had all these different answers of who he could be. Finally, Jesus says to the disciples, he goes, who do you say that I am? And Peter has this amazing answer. He goes, you are the Messiah. Peter gets it. He just knocks it right out of the park. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Arjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. And then Jesus goes on to say, Peter, because you've got this, I'm going to use you, and I'm really going to use you to spread the gospel. An amazing moment in Peter's life. What happens just a couple verses later? Jesus tells the disciples that he needs to go to Jerusalem to die on the cross for their sins. So what does Peter do? Peter pulls Jesus aside, and the Bible says he rebukes him. Peter rebukes God. And that's when God says to Peter through Jesus, Get behind me, Satan. See, what happens sometimes in these spiritual highs, we start thinking we got it all figured out. And what happens when things start clicking? I'm just going to be honest. This is what happens in my life. Things are moving great. Things are going so great that sometimes I don't read as much as I probably should read. I don't pray as much as I should probably pray. I don't spend as much time focusing on the Lord because things are just so wonderful. Little by little, your defenses weaken. Next thing you know, you're in the wilderness. And then what do you do in the wilderness? Cling to Jesus with everything you have. That's why wilderness times are important. They teach us that the only thing we need, the only thing we have, is Christ. And that's all we need. My job as a pastor is to equip you to go to Christ with all your problems and your concerns. He's the answer that you need. And the wilderness time shows us that. Can you turn with me to Hebrews, please? We're going to look at two passages in Hebrews. And we just went over these a couple weeks ago, so they should be familiar to you. Hebrews chapter 4 and also Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 2. Let's do the first one here in Hebrews 4. And Hebrews 4. 
verse 14. Hebrews 4, 14, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. See, that's the wilderness time there, verse 15. He was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. He can sympathize with us because Christ went through it. So since Christ went through it, we have strength through him to be able to go through it ourselves. Now remember that verse 15. He was in all points tempted as we are. Back up now to Hebrews 2. Let's pick it up now in verse 16. Hebrews 2 verse 16. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had been laid like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Here's verse 18. This is the key. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Why did Christ go through the wilderness? So that way he could help us when we go through the wilderness. Whatever you're facing, Christ can say, I know I've been there. We've used this example numerous times. Christ suffered physically. Christ suffered emotionally, and Christ even suffered spiritually. He from the cross cried, My God, my God, why have you say forsaken me? So when you are going through something physical, you may come to me, you may go to a family member and say, This hurts so bad. Well, what does it feel like? You, you can't explain it. You can't pass pain on. We can sit there and nod and say, Oh, I bet that hurts, or I get it, I understand. I don't get it. I don't understand. I'm not feeling what you're feeling. I'm not walking in your shoes. I may think that's just a pebble to you, but yet it's something huge. Spiritually, Emotionally, you may be going through things and you go to that best friend, you go to your spouse, you go to whoever, and you open up your heart to them and it just falls on deaf ears because they don't get it. Now, we may pray with you, we may encourage you, we may give you scriptures, but there's an element of us that just don't get it because we're not in your same spot. That's the beauty of Christ. He's been in the wilderness. So when it says that he has suffered, able to aid, aid us, he's been through it. Where it says he's gone through everything we've gone through, he's able to go through it too. Now, you may be sitting here thinking, now, wait a second. There are things in my life I know that Christ hasn't gone through. How can he say he's gone through everything that I have? Keep that in the back of your mind. We're going to get to that point in a little bit. But the first thing we need to say here is the reason he went through the wilderness is so therefore he can give you strength as you go through the wilderness. I remember years ago I was doing a counseling session with a person. And the way we do counseling out here is pretty simple. We point you back towards Jesus. We point you back towards Christ. We pray with you. We encourage you. And we give you scriptures. Those are the answers we have. And those answers work, I'll be honest with you. The problem is some people don't like those answers. So I was doing counseling with this person. And the counseling was going on for a while. Same thing. We get together. I let the person vent for a little bit. We pray about things. Hey, here's some scriptures I think can encourage you. Take these with you. Pray over these. Meditate over these and go forward. Well, what happened was somebody from church came up to me and said, hey, are you sitting down with this person? I said, yeah, we're going through it. We're going through some stuff. And I said, why do you ask? And they said, oh, no reason. I said, I asked them. I said, are you doing counseling with the pastor? And they said, yeah. And so I asked them, how's it going? And they said, not good. And I said, why is and I said well, why did they say it wasn't going good? They said, well, the only thing he ever does is pray with me and give me scriptures. That's the best counseling I can do. I point you towards Christ. See, what happens sometimes is people run into counseling of, I can fix your problems. I'm going to tell you right now, I can't fix your problems. I did not die on the cross for your sins. I did not go into the wilderness for you. Christ did. What I will do if you come to me is I will point you back towards Christ. I will encourage you. I will hold your hand. I will cry with you. I will pray with you. And I will give you scripture. Because Christ is the one that will get you through it. The reason he went through the wilderness is so therefore we can have strength when we go through the wilderness. Now, look at how Christ did this. The way he won his victory was through scripture. Look at this. If you look here in Luke 4, every time Satan came at him, he always responds with the scripture. Verse 4, verse 8, verse 12. 
Scripture. This is why we go verse by verse, book by book, chapter by chapter through the Bible. We feel it is so vital to just know God's Word. And as you know God's Word, it does something in you to grow you in your walk in relationship with Christ. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah that God's Word would not return void. It says in the book of Romans that as you study God's Word, your faith grows. There is something about just being in the Word on a regular basis and praying over it, meditating over it, growing in it, and you grow. Speaking of counseling, I was doing counseling with a guy years ago, and he was struggling with lust. So I gave him all the scriptures on lust, all those stuff about lust. So Matthew 5, Psalm 119, how can a young man stay pure by living according to your word? And there's another great passage in Psalm 119 where it says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against God. That's a powerful verse. So I told him, go home, read these verses. And you know I say that all the time. Stick the verses on your fridge, put them on your car, and just be around scripture. So the guy said, Okay, so I go home, I read these verses, I study these verses, I hide these verses in my heart that I might not sin against God. And he goes, how does that work? My response to him was very deep and profound. I said, I don't know. I don't know exactly how it works, but you know what? I know it works. I know it works in my life. Whenever I'm struggling with an area, I find a verse with that area, I write that verse down, and I put it everywhere I'm going to see it. There is something spiritual that happens of constantly being in the word and that word transforms our heart and mind into being more and more like christ if you still aren't a believer and it working then you need to take it up with jesus because in luke 4 when he battled the testing and temptation in the wilderness the way he won his victory is he just quoted scripture back at him that's the example we have scripture according to ephesians 6 and hebrews 4 is a sword now sometimes swords are used to defend but the primary purpose of a sword is what attack according to the bible we have a shield it's called the shield of faith so the purpose of the sword is to attack. The reason we give Scripture, the reason you pray over Scripture, the reason you constantly read Scripture, it is the way that you constantly keep attacking. It's you being on the offensive. So when Christ was tested and Satan came at him, Christ has swung a sword at him. That's a powerful example for us to learn. You will never regret the amount of time you spend in the Scripture. Now, a little pet peeve of mine, don't treat Scripture and devotions like homework. I have to read it. I have to do it. If that's the way you treat it, you'll get nothing. Treat it like something that is going to be powerful and active in your life. Read it expectantly. That I know the time I spend in this Word, God will use, and He'll use it importantly in my life. Christ is an example. Now, let's look at what the enemy did here. Now, for you that come on Wednesday nights, we just did a whole teaching on the enemy when we were finishing up our study in 1 Peter. And for those that didn't grab it, if you want to get a copy of it, it's July 25th, July 25th there. But we talked about the enemy. We talked about how the enemy does three things. First thing he does, according to John 8, 44, is he just flat out lies. He's the father of lies. He comes to you and he says things like, you know what, you don't have a drinking problem. You don't. It's just a flat out lie. He comes to the gal and says, listen, you know what, that guy, oh, that guy's good for you. And next thing you know, you're giving your heart, your body, and your soul over to someone who you shouldn't be with. He just lies. So he just flat out Lies. Now the next thing he does, and this is what we see mostly here in Luke 4, according to Genesis 3, he twists scriptures. Remember when the enemy appeared to Eve, he said to her, has God indeed said? He just plants this little twisting of scripture in there. And if you look here in Luke 4, Satan quotes scripture in verses 10 and 11. Now he's not quoting them in the right context. He's sure quoting scripture. I tell you right now, I hear a lot of guys on the radio, and I see a lot of guys on TV with the Bible in their hand quoting Scripture. And it's twisted. He twists Scripture. That's what he does. He just takes a little bit of it and does it. There's a lot of false cults and false religions out there that maybe 75% to 90% of it lines up with Christianity. And so people look at it and say, hey, it's pretty close. I'm telling you, that last 25%, that last 10% is some pretty funky stuff. It's twisted. That's exactly what the enemy does. He keeps enough element of truth in it to make you say well it doesn't look too bad but then he twists enough of it 
to take it off the focus on the Lord. That's exactly what he does. He outright lies, John 8, 44. He twists scriptures, Genesis 3. And the last thing he does is 2 Corinthians 11. He says he masquerades as an angel of light. He just uses deception. He makes himself look good. We talked about this a couple Wednesdays ago. So often when we think of the enemy, we get that Looney Tunes character of the red guy with the pointy tail and the pitchfork. Oh, we've said numerous times out here before, the best description of the enemy is probably a three-piece suit with the Bible in his hand. He makes himself look good, so therefore we're deceived. So he's the father of lies, he twists truth, and he makes himself look good. So let's go now and look at here what actually happens. First thing we see... Verse 3. Actually, jump back to verse 2 here real quick. I always thought this was really a dumb statement. I never fully understood this until someone explained it to me. He's in the wilderness for 40 days by the devil, verse 2. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. I always used to look at that and say, well, what a dumb statement. Of course he was hungry. You would eat for 40 days, you'd be hungry too. Somebody explained this to me. I assume this is fact. If someone has more knowledge on this, please let me know afterwards. The way they told me is that when you quit eating, your body obviously is hungry. You get hungry. But what happens is after a few days, your body starts to shut down and you no longer actually feel hungry. But what happens then is the second time around, your body becomes hungry again. And when your body becomes hungry the second time, your body's now telling you this is life or death hunger. What happens is the body for those 40 days here with Christ used up all available resources that it had and now was left with nothing. And now the body was telling Jesus, you have to eat or you're going to die. So this is not just, hey, a hamburger sounds good to me, I'm hungry. This is life or death hunger in verse 2. So Satan just happens to appear at the right time. And he says something real simple, stone to bread. That's not that big a deal, is it? Stone to bread. The problem is if Jesus would have taken stone to bread, what is he doing? He's using his divine power for selfish gains. See, if he's in the wilderness to be tempted and tested like we are, I've been hungry numerous times in my life, not to the point of this hunger. I can't pick up a stone and make it bread. I can't do that. If he's in the wilderness to be tempted and tested like we are, he can't give in. Even though he has the power to do it, he needs to say no to that. So he says, no, I'm not going to use my divine power for selfish gain. Next one. Satan comes up in verses 6 and 7. He says, I'll give you the world. You can have it. Simple, just worship me. Now, real quick, going back to our lesson on Satan a couple weeks ago, one of the things the Bible says, he's the God of this age. When sin entered the world through Adam and Eve 6,000 years ago, the world was given over to Satan. So if you watch the nightly news and you sit there saying, why? Why do these things happen? How can a God of love allow these things to happen? And I'm not trying to not pick on anybody. We sing that wonderful hymn of this is my father's world. This is not your father's world. This world is run by the enemy. And this is the result of sin and greed and lust. So Satan rightfully in verses 6 and 7 can say, you can have it. Now Jesus is going to get the world back. That's what he did on the cross. He paid the debt for the world. But at this point, what is Satan doing in verses 6 and 7? He's saying, sidestep the cross. You don't have to go to the cross. Just worship me and I'll give you everything. Wow. Now, Jesus knew the pain and suffering that was coming upon him, not only physically, but emotionally and spiritually. But he didn't do it. He could have taken the easy way out in verses 6 and 7, and he didn't. Lastly, what we have here in verses 9 and 10 is this idea of go up on the top of the temple and jump off. Bring attention to yourself. I always call this the circus sideshow Christianity. Let everybody know you're the God. You don't have to do the whole rising from the dead thing. If you just jump off the temple and amazingly the angels fly in and just grab you like that, everybody will know you're the Messiah 
And you don't have to do the cross thing. Oh, Jesus said it's not about the circus show. It's not about me. It's about the cross. See, what happens is I run into a lot of circus show, what I call Christianity, where they do something amazing to grab your attention and to make you excited. And then what happens is you think, what are they going to do next? And so then every single service has to be something more amazing, more spectacular, because it's just what's happening. And then if they have a typical service where it's not exciting, then you walk away. Well, that wasn't fun. I didn't see any dead people raised today. That was kind of boring. We've joked out here before, but I tell you it's serious. That's why we set the bar so low. We will make this service as boring as possible. You will come in with no expectations. None. And then when something happens that's good, it's like, well, I can't believe there was something good there. So Jesus here said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to jump off for some circus sideshow. I'm not doing that. Now, there's also a deeper reason why these three things happened. Remember that verse I said to remember, Hebrews 4:15, and all points tempted as we are. You may be sitting here saying, okay, James, I still don't see it. I've never been so hungry that I've wanted to turn stones to bread. I've never been offered the kingdoms of the world, and I've never had the desire to jump off a building and be miraculously saved to bring attention to myself. Sins I struggle with, I don't see. I don't see Jesus struggling with lust. I don't see him struggling with anger. I don't see him struggling with an unloving spouse. I don't see him struggling with alcohol. I don't see him struggling with debt. Yeah, where are those things that I'm struggling with right now where in all ways he's been tested just as we've been tested? Let's build on this for a little bit. Can you go with me to 1 John 3, please? 1 John 3. Remember, the purpose of Christ in the wilderness is for us to be able to have a Messiah that we can relate to and turn to in times of need. 1 John 3. Actually, I apologize. 1 John 2. 1 John 2. What you have here in 1 John 2 is every sin we've ever committed. And we've, we've gone over this before, so this may be reviewed to some of you. Any sin that you could commit falls into one of these three categories. 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Those three things in verse 16, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life, any sin falls into those three categories. It does. Just, just trust me on this. Last time we taught on this, it would have been a while ago, I remember a guy came up to me after church, and he said, I spent the rest of the service trying to think of a sin that did not fall in those three categories. Okay, don't waste your time. Anything you can think of falls into one of those three categories. And don't think too hard about sin, guys, okay? Just trust me on this. So those three categories cover everything. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So keep that in the back of your mind. Now let's build on this, if you will. Go with me now, Genesis 3. Genesis 3. Let's go back to the first sin that was ever committed. Great, 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 great grandma and grandpa and see what they did in Genesis 3. Remember those three things. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Genesis 3. This is where we start to bring it all together here. Now it says in Genesis 3 verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said? See, right there is our first thing. Twisting scripture. He's twisting the words of God. Has God indeed said you should not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Verse 4. That's John 8, 44. Father of lies. See, he twisted God's word in verse 1. In verse 4, he just outright lied. You realize over 6,000 years, the enemy has not changed his battle plan. And he doesn't have to change his battle plan. You know why? It works. I'll take truth and twist it. I'll just outright lie. And I'll deceive myself. So it, the same things are still happening today. Verse 5, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took up a fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Verse 6, Put our three things in there. 
First one, she saw the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh. Next one, that it was pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes. Last one, a tree desirable to make one wise, right of life. See, every sin falls into those three categories. Eve and Adam fell into every one of those sins. So, 6,000 years ago, sin came into the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. 6,000 years later, it's still here, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. But Jesus in the wilderness defeated those sins. Jump back now to Luke 4. Let's put the final cherry on top of this thing. Luke 4, Jesus defeated these things. The first one that you have, turn stone to bread, lust of the flesh, defeated. Adam and Eve fell, Satan still uses it, Jesus defeated it. Next one, you can have the whole world, Christ, lust of the eyes. Adam and Eve fell, we still fall, Jesus defeated it. Last one, jump off the temple, everybody will know you're the Messiah. You don't need to prove yourself. Right of life, Adam and Eve fell, Jesus defeated it. See, so when it says that in all points he's been tempted and tested like us, and he's able to help us, he has been. He has. So whatever thing you struggle with, lust of the flesh, alcohol, I don't know. You may say, well, I don't find a verse in the Bible where Jesus was tempted to go and buy a 24-pack every day on the way home from work. No, it's not in there. But that's a lust of the flesh that he defeated by not turning the stone and bread. See, he's been there. So our job as a church is to point you back towards the Messiah that was in the wilderness that won the victory for you. And he defeated it. How? The scripture? By staying true to the Lord? By realizing that, yeah, he had that spiritual high with the baptism, but there was a wilderness time coming? I mean, just be honest right now. Somebody here, I'm sure this morning, is in a wilderness. And you're looking for the first way out. What you need in the wilderness is not an easy exit. What you need in the wilderness is Christ. He's the one that will get you through that wilderness time. Some of you right now, you may not be in the wilderness, but you're just struggling. You have a lust of the flesh, a lust of the eyes, a pride of life. You've got something that is just knocking you down left and right. And you have no hope anymore. But you do have hope. Christ, he defeated that for you. So since he defeated it, you can walk in victory because he defeated it for you. Let's finish with this. Can you go to Romans 6, please? That's what we're going to close with. Romans 6. Romans 6. Let's go Romans 6. Let's pick it up here in verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away, with that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. No, if we died with Christ, we believe also that we should live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the death, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. See? Since Christ won the victory on the cross, we have freedom from sin. You do not have to be run by lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. You don't. You've spent too many years, I've spent too many years letting those things control me. We don't have to do that anymore. In the wilderness, Christ defeated those things in temptation and trials and testing. On the cross, he defeated it completely, and that's why we can sing, it is finished. Because it's done. He took care of it. Now, what happens in our life? Did you catch the last part of Luke 4 where it says that the enemy left him and waited for what? A more opportune time. See, I have moments of victory where things just click amazingly. Areas that I struggled with, I don't struggle with anymore, and I'm walking in victory. The enemy's just waiting for a more opportune time. He's probing the lines, looking for a weakness in me. He has followed human nature for 6,000 years. He's pretty good at knowing human nature. So he waits for an area of weakness that we may not even notice, and then what happens is he attacks. That's the same thing that happens now to us. So we need to be make sure that we're strong in the Word, we're strong in prayer, we're strong in fellowship and encouragement. We need to use all those tools that God gave us to stay strong, realizing that there are going to be wilderness times that come. There are going to be times of temptation that come, but Jesus defeated it for us. Once again, I don't know where you're at, and this is why I wanted to finish with communion here this morning. 
because communion is a great time for us to go to the Lord. You may be in the wilderness right now. Your, your life is dry, it is a drought, and you are just struggling spiritually, physically, emotionally, and you do not see a way out. And you are crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He hasn't. He's been through the wilderness too. He is right there with you, helping you get through it. Helping you get through it. That's the beautiful thing about it. Dawn sent me an email this week, and it was, it was a little, just two, uh, uh, two little page cartoon. It was Jesus talking to someone. And it had uh, Jesus talking to this person, and he was quoting the famous story of footprints. You know, the time where you only see the one set of footprints were the times that I carried you. Okay, so that's neat. Well, the second little panel of the cartoon says, you see that real long line there? Those are the times you didn't want to be carried, and I drug you in the sand. <laughs> Truth of the matter is, sometimes when you're in a wilderness... You're carried by the Lord, and there's other times you're in the wilderness, you're just being drugged around left and right. Some of you came in here this morning, and you're just beat up. You're just completely beat up. You need this time to go to the Lord and say, Lord, you've been through the wilderness. You know what it's like. I need your strength and help to get me through this. Now, some of you may not be in the wilderness right now. My goodness, that lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, you're getting knocked down left and right. There's always something pulling you down, tempting you. You need to know that Satan is there. He is trying to pull you down. But Jesus defeated him in the wilderness. Jesus defeated him on the cross. And so therefore we can walk in that victory just like Romans 6 says. We can be dead to sin. Communion is a great time to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I need strength. I need help to confess our sins to him and rely on his grace and love and mercy. It's a beautiful thing. And lastly, some of you may be here this morning. You're like, okay, it's not a wilderness. I'm really not facing temptation. Things are really clicking. And amen. Just enjoy the season. Not trying to be negative here, but wilderness time's coming. I'm just being honest. But enjoy it right now where you got it. Because there are going to be tough times in life. We all know that. Whatever spot you're in, there's a time to come to the Lord and either say, Lord, thank you, or Lord, help me. That's what he's here to do. So, Bob, if we're going to get the kids and bring them forward. What we do out here at Harvest, if you haven't been